wanna give me a fair shake? HBO need to fire you. You know what box. You ain't broke my back. What do you mean by that? You broke back is broken. What uh, a vertebrae or, or what uh, portion? Spinal. Yeah, my problem, I spanked him. Yeah, How did he gonna be him. as equally talented as me? Are you serious? As easy as I beat him? I could have beat him while playing chuckles on the other side. That's how easy that was. <laughs> and he better than us? Are you serious, no. James Tony? Right, listen. If you, if you want to sort it out, fight me. You didn't fight me. You could have fought me and you didn't. If you want to fight me, here I am. Let's have a fight. Let's do it on the cobbles if you want. Forget boxing. Let's do it outside. You starting to say all these big words. I'm starting to take it as disrespect. So one of the benefits of doing a podcast straight after a fight is you capture a raw emotion that you don't get two or three days afterwards. I think it makes for good content and the feedback I receive suggests that it makes for great content. And I think just the numbers on that one alone, just the 24 hours straight after, I don't think I've done better numbers in a long time, not since the drugs episode. And that's got to be about 20, 30 episodes ago. Because I think people understood what I was trying to get at. And it requires that you make an intellectual distinction here between Anthony Joshua, the human being, the, the guy with the national insurance number, the guy that had to wear a tag once upon a time, the guy that won the Olympic gold medal, the guy that's occasionally really funny in his social media posts, the guy who's occasionally really insightful, the guy who stood up for Black Lives Matter at a crucial moment. That's Anthony Joshua, the human being. And what we're dealing with here is what I call the Anthony Joshua Project. And I've talked about this over numerous episodes in a number of years and it's the project which says how do we take one human being and extract the maximum amount of revenue we can out of him and it seems to tie in with this notion that's seemingly inspired by Floyd Mayweather where the aim of the game is to get paid and that seems to be the overarching message when you talk to people associated with AJ they talk about money and you can have that discussion about money as much as you want but like, I'm not the pocket police. Do you see what I mean? I actually don't care what's in Anthony Joshua's pocket. I, it doesn't really bother me. Today, at this point in time, it doesn't bother me what's in Anthony Joshua's po pocket. I just pray that he's paying his taxes because we know sometimes he hasn't paid his taxes and it's caused problems. And that's why, you know, that's why he's had to go to pay-per-view. Some people might suggest I can't possibly comment on that. And that's fine. You really want to talk about the Anthony Joshua project. You want to talk about the sponsors he's able to bring on or the struggles they have in not bringing on sponsors. That's 100% fine. The problem is Anthony Joshua never talks about stuff like that. To his credit, actually. As a boxer and someone who clearly understands the sport, he doesn't talk about the money. The word he uses more often than not is legacy. The four belts is about legacy. Now, is he disguising the word legacy with opportunism? I have no idea. Because if you look at how he's won his belts, first belt, Charles Martin, maybe the least deserving world champion we can think of in a long time because he won the belt when Paul Glasgow essentially broke his ankle and never boxed again. So when people talk about quitting, there you go. He never boxed again because of an injury, you suspect. There might be other reasons, but after that injury, he never boxed again. And then he gets handed a belt by facing a Vladimir Klitschko, who, let's just deal with facts here, had been out of the ring 
since he fought Tyson Fury. So what is that? A year and a half out of the ring? As a man in his 40s? I can't imagine that would make you better. If someone's got the biological evidence to prove that you get better as you get older, please, please provide it. But I don't believe that's true. So we've got two belts accounted for, maybe three, because I think the IBO is thrown in at this point. And then you win the WBO belt against Joseph Parker, also a not very deserving champion, just you know, based on who he had beaten and who he went on to beat subsequently. Joseph Parker is not really that special a talent. But the fact is he's got the belts, right? But at the point that he's got all the belts he currently has, there's no real legacy. There's a legacy in terms of Wembley was 90,000 and this, that, and the other, but chalk that up to the Joshua Project, okay? That's the stuff you put in the prospectus for sponsors. That's not the stuff you have conversations in barbershops with. That's not the, the stuff you have conversations in pubs with. That's not what you talk about on boxing forums, and that's not what you talk about on boxing Twitter. You talk about what is this man's legacy. So the great thing about legacy, and I think this is true in every sport, is it's not about what you individually think is your legacy. And you know, that would be absolutely ridiculous. It's ultimately about where do your achievements stack up against what's come before and how will they stack up against what comes after? We have very clear historic points of reference where we can look at Anthony Joshua and say, are you part of this discussion of greatness in heavyweight boxing? Yes or no? And for that, you can only focus on what happened in the ring. Yeah. Because let's be honest, Joshua Klitschko, Wembley 90,000, is no rumble in the jungle, it's no thrill in Manila. It's no Tyson Holyfield 1, it's no Tyson Holyfield 2. It's not Tyson Lewis. It doesn't rank among the great fights of the last 30 years. And like I said, that's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a Joshua Project conversation. So we just look at, we look at two things. Who did you chase and who did you fight? Once we get to that point, once we get a, a large enough number of people who are impressive from those two perspectives, we then look at how did you get on? Did you win? Did you lose? What were the performances like? That's how we talk about greatness because greatness is that thing that they say you can't measure, but you know it when you see it. And it's when someone takes on the impossible and succeeds. That's what we're looking for. Boxing is a quiet taste. As a sport, people either like it or they don't like it. So what it means is when you become a boxing fan, sometimes you don't have a dad or a granddad or an uncle who's so deeply steeped in the sport that they can give you this longitudinal view on how a division has evolved. Sometimes you decide to go and seek it out for yourself, and that's fine. But most people who consume this are relatively new to boxing based on the feedback I receive. They're relatively new, and they may dig in the archives and, you know, watch a few fights on YouTube. But that's different to having grown up around something. Because you'd have felt these things in the context in which they existed. So, obviously, I'm limited by the years I've been on this earth. But I can talk about Tyson versus you know, Buster Douglas. I can talk about Tyson versus Holyfield. I can talk about Holyfield versus Bo because I was alive in that era and I consumed those products. So 
There's other stuff I can't, but I can still pay homage to those that came before and understand that contextually, many have done a lot more with their careers than Anthony Joshua at this point in their lives. Yeah, We're not even looking at the totality of the career. We're drawing a line at the age of 31, 32 and saying, what had you done by this point? Pick who you want, Joe Lewis. So... By 30, Joe Lewis already fought Primo Canera, Max Bear, Max Schmeling twice. Now, if you need to, if you need me to explain why the Max Schmeling fights are a big deal, then you might be kind of green to the sport at this point. But that's worth understanding that there is a there's this wider context. Guys had done incredible things before the age of 30. Joe Lewis being one of them. You want to look at. Rocky Marciano, he's more of an anomaly because I think he, he started later. But even if you look at him, he already had the names of Gazagachi Moore and Ezra Charles on his record. And if you want to know how good they are, just ask Spencer Fear and what he thinks of both men. And Marciano was done 49-0, reasonably solid career. Puts him among the greats, I guess. And then you start looking at guys like Floyd Patterson, Olympic gold medalist at middleweight, goes up to heavyweight. And by that point, he had already fought Sonny Liston. I think he'd fought him twice. And he fought Muhammad Ali before he was 31. And there's a young man that went to the Olympics in about 17, 17, 18, and won an Olympic gold medal. So when people say Joshua won a gold medal, yes. But look, look at how quickly Floyd put himself in harm's way. Ingmar Johansson, I think he went three fights with him and he won two, lost one. So, as a young man, he already compiled a hell of a CV. And there's an argument to say, well, it was different in those days. It, the mechanics may have been slightly different, but listen, the, the desire to fight is the desire to fight. That remains steadfast and universal in the sport that we call boxing. This is all being done by 31. The next great Olympic gold medalist that came out to become a heavyweight was Muhammad Ali, although he won his gold at light heavyweight. But you already know his CV by 31. Sonny Liston twice. Yeah, yeah, I know some people want to whack in Henry Cooper in there. If you want to do that, by all means do that, you know, back the Brit and all that. Then you're fighting guys like Cleveland Williams, who was still a live opponent and a dangerous opponent, but definitely a B-level guy when Ali fought him. But a, probably a better guy when some of the older heavyweights are Floyd Patterson fought him and Sonny Liston. So you've got Sonny Liston twice. Seminal fights. You've got the, the Cleveland Williams masterclass. You've got the Ernie Terrell masterclass. You know, all fights with, with a degree of historic significance. And then you've got three years off. Prime years off. To then come back. And before you're 31, you already fought Joe Frazier in the fight of the century. At 31. So now think, Muhammad Ali comes into the professional game and he goes, there's already a gold medalist that came before me, Floyd Patterson. I'm going to have to fight this guy. There's a big monster called Sonny Liston. I'm going to have to fight this guy. He ended up fighting Patterson twice and Liston twice. And the great thing about Muhammad Ali is he chased those guys. He didn't wait for them to call him out. He said, I want these guys. And he went after them and he beat them. Boxing 101. Tell us who you want to get. 
go out and get them, please. Okay, so now imagine, imagine you're Joe Frazier and you win your Olympic gold medal in 1964 and in your head you're like, God, four years ago this guy Muhammad Ali won the gold and he's tearing it up in the heavyweight division. I'm going to have to fight this guy at some point. We're not that far apart in age. I think it's probably four years between them. And he's going, there's a Floyd Patterson guy as well. Hmm. I might have to fight him. He's another gold medalist, another guy that's been a world champion. And he's not that much older than me. There's seven years difference. And he doesn't even know what's, what's expected to come down the line four years later. And Joe Frazier, what does he do? Works his way up. And then when he's in a position, he goes after the people who came before him. He goes after them. I want to fight Ali. Please reinstate Ali. He helped Ali out. I'm not saying he gave loads of money, but he gave Ali something to, to move around with. And so we get to 71 and Frazier fights Ali. So then you look at Joe Frazier and you go, so what had he done by 31? Three fights with Ali? Two fights with Foreman? That's five fights that had the world's attention. Five fights that he was happy to chase. Five fights that were happy to chase him. So he chased the first Ali fight. Ali chased the second. And I think they mutually kind of chased each other for the third. And then you come to 68 and you've got Big George. And Big George sees everything. He's like, Floyd Patterson's still going. He's a gold medalist. Ali, he might come back. Frazier, Jesus, the guy's a monster. And I'm the fourth gold medalist. And at this point, we're all in the same division at the same time. George goes after everyone. Goes after Joe Frazier, what age? 24? And obliterates him. Then Ali chases him. And then George, George goes after the rematch with Joe Frazier. And then obviously in 77, he loses to Jimmy Young. And that's kind of his time done in the heavyweights. But... He was, he was involved in fights. Um, Nassau, Kinshasa. He was involved in fights we will always remember as heavyweight fans. So I say all of that to say, if you look at just that generation and look at what they did across the 60s and the 70s, just look at that. Like what Foreman was able to do to guys like, look, look at Foreman. What, Frazier? Was it Frazier twice? Ali? Ken Norton, uh, Ron Lyle, Ernie Shavers. George was in tough. Jimmy Young, I put Jimmy Young in there. Very underrated as a heavyweight. So all of these guys have fights where you're like, they really wanted those fights and they made it obvious. And they weren't easy fights. That's the template we all have in our head of what heavyweight greatness looks like. And that's why those four guys sit in everyone's top 20 and at least three of those guys sit in your top 10 comfortably. And in amongst all of this, the guy you have to feel sorry for is Larry Holmes. He was the guy that came to the party. You know, you know, sometimes you arrive at a party and you're like four hours too late and you kind of miss the best bit and you're just kind of floating around. Because by the time Larry became world champion in the late 70s, there wasn't anything left. Like, you know, we, the generation we just spoke about had kind of disappeared into the sunset or were on their way out. And the generation that were to become the guys of the 90s hadn't really surfaced yet. So you had this kind of barren period where you had super talented guys, but 
it was much of a muchness. They could all beat each other and often did. But in, in amongst all of that, Larry Holmes was the guy who was head and shoulders above them, at least for the first five years of the 80s. Now, people speculate as to why that was the case. People talk about rampant recreational drug use at that time. People talk about the Don King influence. People talk about people taking dives in order to pad out other records. But if you look at those guys from the 80s and you put them into this current era, factoring you know, variations in size and so forth, they'd be top five comfortably. They were talented. And Larry sat atop all of those. Until he faced Michael Spinks, there's another guy. Um, super special talent. So in the 80s, you have Michael Spinks. And Michael Spinks won, I think he won the 1976 Olympic middleweight gold. And then went on to become the undisputed light heavyweight champion. So he was beating guys like Dwight Muhammad Kawi, Yaki Lopez, etc., etc. Had a damn good record at 175. Probably one of the greatest light heavyweights of all time. Jumps up to heavyweight to fight Larry Holmes, giving away, I don't know, 25 pounds, 30 pounds, and beats him twice. But sadly, we'll only know Larry, uh, Michael Spinks for what happened against Mike Tyson. I don't think that's a fair reflection on his career at that point. And we should give him credit. He, once again, there's a guy who chased greatness. You win an Olympic middleweight gold, and you say, I'm going to be heavyweight champion of the world. That's like, that's Floyd Patterson talk. That tells you this isn't a very big man. And he still went into the world of the Giants and was able to win the world title and be competitive for a while until Iron Mike showed up. And we know what Mike achieved by the age of 31, and that's factoring in three or four years in jail. Right? We know what Mike did. Mike cleaned up, became undisputed heavyweight champion. You know, I know there weren't four belts at the time, but he had all the available belts. But who was in his rearview mirror every step of the way? Another all-time great, Evander Holyfield. Another guy who won Olympic gold, sub-heavyweight, worked his way from light heavy through the cruiser, became undisputed a cruiserweight. And every time he was a cruiser, he said, I want to fight Mike Tyson. I'm going to go up to heavyweight and fight Mike Tyson. He was that determined. He had already signed the paperwork to fight Mike if Mike beat Buster Douglas for the world titles. That's what he was there for. And then you look at his record. As someone coming up, you're fighting guys like Mike, Michael Dokes, you're fighting George Foreman, and we know that George went on to become a world champion. You have pretty solid names on your CV. You factor in the guys like Buster Douglas as well. So Evander did a lot by 31. Tyson did a lot by 31. Riddick both three fights with Holyfield by 31. Two fights with Galotta too, and Galotta's massively, massively underrated as a heavyweight. All the names we talk about in boxing had done so much by 31, and they'd given the fans so much. That's the important thing here. They'd given the fans fights where you're like, I will remember that. So while Anthony Joshua talks about legacy, they delivered on legacy. If you think about it like this, Riddick Bowe was probably done before he was 30, and we talk about him as being one of the great heavyweights because he took those risks. The, another anomaly is Lennox, and there's something about Lennox where his career didn't get going till his 30s, and you know we could say that tarnishes his legacy, but I think the truth was people didn't really want to fight him until they saw that he was vulnerable. 
when Lennox was just tearing people apart, which he was doing, when he was tearing people apart, people were avoiding him. We know what Riddick Bowe did with his belt. And we know Holyfield took his time in fighting. So Lennox doesn't have that great record by 31, but look, he has his Olympic gold. He has Gary Mason. He has Frank Bruno. He has Donovan Razor Ruddock. He has Ray Mercer. God, Ray Mercer. You know, he has Tommy Morrison at the time when Tommy was still running people over. So he has good names on his CV, but he didn't have the Holyfields. He didn't have the Tysons. He didn't have the David Tours. And I want to put David Tour in there because I think he's one of the greatest boxers never to win a heavyweight title, which tells you how deep the division was in the 90s. And then it all goes flat again in the 2000s. And it's the era of Audley and guys like Dominic Gwynn, um, Lamont Brewster, you know, guys who we thought were going to do something. And in the midst of all of that, another Olympic gold medalist at middleweight comes up to heavyweight and wins the title in Chris Bird. Don't underestimate how great that achievement is. You have to respect anyone who makes their debut at super middleweight and two years later starts fighting as a heavyweight. A man who has both Klitschko brothers on his record, a man who has a win against Evander Holyfield for the IBF on his record, a guy who took the ring with Ike Bayabuchi as a small man. Chris Bird is a physically small man. He's not, he wasn't a big guy for middleweight even. He was a small guy who went up to heavyweight and had a more sustained career as a heavyweight than David Hay did. Now, does that make him an all-time great? No, but it gives him greatness because he wasn't supposed to be up there and be competitive. And then after him, it's pretty much the Klitschko dominance until we get Tyson Fury. And, you know, Tyson did what we've established before. He, he's, he went after the main man and he hunted him down. Prior to that, he hunted down David Hay. Tyson Fury hunted everyone down. Tyson's never had to wait for a fight to come to him. So Tyson ticks those boxes. He doesn't have enough of those ticks yet for greatness, but he's on that path. And you look at Fury and you go, he went after, hey, that's a tick in the box. He went after Klitschko, beat him comfortably. Massive tick in the box. Went missing for two years, came back, went after Deontay Wilder, fought him twice. No defeats. And now he's going after Anthony Joshua. So that's two Olympic gold medalists, two big punching monsters he's going after. Wilder, same thing. I'm after everyone. I'll fight Fury. I'll fight Joshua. I'll fight everyone. There's a man whose record you can't question either. So we've got guys in the modern era doing it. As Virgil Hunter would say, daring to be great. We've got guys doing that. And in amongst all of this, we look at Anthony Joshua and we go, okay, what are you doing? And we have to be brutally honest and we have to be real and we have to be realistic here. Okay, and we have to say, in terms of greatness, the Ali's, the Foreman's, the Frazier's, the Tyson's even, you know, in terms of those guys, the Holyfields, the Bows, where does Anthony Joshua currently sit for the same year in their life as he is now? And the answer is, he's probably at the bottom of that pile because Chris, Charles Martin doesn't, he doesn't stand up historically. Dominic Brazil doesn't stand up historically. 
Eric Molina, we already know the truth about that. Vlad does, but in name only at that point. So you get half a tick for that. Takam, you know the answer to that. Povetkin, you know the answer to that. Park, you know the answer to that. Ruiz. And then Pulev. Joshua has a very 1980s feel to his CV where it's just kind of names and you're like, whatever. You know, these guys are Pinklon Thomas and Mitch Bloodgreen in the 80s and you're just like, cannon fodder, fair enough. Uh, who's the other guy with the big left hook? Jerry Cooney. It's all cannon fodder. And, and so when you look at Joshua's record, pull away the sky rhetoric, pull away the Adam Smith massive overselling, pull away the, the Eddie Hearn spotlighting and pull away the, the continued crunching from the fans. Pull all of that away and look and go, how many of the names Joshua's fought stand up in history? And he's had 20 odd fights to give us at least a couple. He hasn't done that. Nor has he shown any appetite to do so. So like I said, is that the Joshua project or is that Joshua the man? Is that Joshua the man realizing, actually, maybe I'm not going to be that guy. And I know people will now come back and go, maybe Joshua doesn't want to be great. So I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Why was it that Joshua sought to replicate Muhammad Ali's images so much? And that was him on his social media. Some of them he had to take down like the the suit and sunglasses one he had to take down when he tried to compare himself to Ali or when he downed Klitschko and they tried to make out like that was a parallel with Ali and Sonny Liston. So my question becomes, if he's already positioning himself at that level, do I not have a right to assess him at that level? Because at that level, he's poor. At, at the Muhammad Ali level, Joshua doesn't stack up. At the Chris Bird level, he barely stacks up. Now think of the gap between Chris Bird and Muhammad Ali. We're not even talking about Chris Bird being an all-time great. He's just a hell of a heavyweight. And he deserves a massive amount of respect. So now we've got to look and say, where do you put, where do you put Joshua? What is Joshua? Is Joshua a Galotta type fighter? That will just go, actually, do you know what? He wasn't a road sweeper. He was better than we think he is. Is that how we've got to treat him? Is Joshua the modern-day Galotta? Mm, I don't know. What I do know for certain is he doesn't sit at the top table of heavyweights at the moment. He's got, you know, he's got the rest of his career to change that. But his mindset doesn't indicate he's anywhere near understanding what's required of him. But on the other hand, if boxing fans are telling me that actually Joshua is of a level of a Povetkin, uh, you know, put Povetkin in there, of a Pulev, of a Huey Fury, of a Dillian White. If you're telling me he's at that level, then he's the best of the bunch. But you've got to tell me what the baseline is for us to assess Anthony Joshua, historically, because as things stand, he's not really all that. Maybe he's a Tim Witherspoon or something like that. Maybe he's that sort of level of fighter. A guy we'll always have a soft spot for, but we'll realise, nah, he wasn't all that. Maybe even a Frank Bruno who rarely gets a mention. So, so it comes back to this point. When you talk about legacy, when you position yourself in the same discussion as Muhammad Ali, we have every right to assess you against these things here. And against these things, he comes up short. That's not being a hater. That's 
That's just what the evidence presents itself as. So if someone can tell me on what basis you can put Ali in the same conversation as even a George Foreman or Joe Frazier, okay, cool. He's definitely not Ali. Oh, we're going to talk about his activism in front of 112 people in a Watford wreck. We're going to talk about that. Are we going to talk about the fact that he, he hides his Muslim, his Muslim faith? Are we going to talk about that? No. Because that's Joshua the person. We're talking about here the Joshua Project, which was Road to Undisputed and all of this and all of that, which has all come back with a vengeance now. So if you look at the Joshua Project, we had, we had all of the nonsense on Saturday, and I'm sure they all patted themselves on the back and said, you know, that's a job well done. All 52 people involved in this, all 52 people taken away out of Anthony Joshua's labor. All of these people say, yeah, that's a good job. None of these people have a clue about boxing, by the way. They have no sense of its historical significance or whatever. They don't care. They just look at metrics. Yeah, we're trending. You know, we're, we're hitting all-time KPIs, yada, 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 yada. So for all you kind of people who like to sit in front of desks and talk about stuff like that, like programmatic stuff, hey, you know what I mean? Change your careers for a start. But B, you know what I mean? Good luck and there you go. They're the numbers you love. They don't mean anything in the big scheme of things. They mean absolutely nothing. Because after Joshua's retired, no one's going to talk about his social media engagement. They're going to look at his CV and go, yeah, not all that. No one's going to care about how many tweets came out on the night of a fight. No one's going to care about the IFL interviews after all of this is said and done. We're going to look at the record and go, he wasted a lot of good years. You remember, we heard all the right talk over the weekend. Monday, we're going to get this deal done. This deal's going to take a couple of days. Okay, Monday's gone. We gave you Monday. From what I gathered, Daniel Kinahan had done the deal. Like, I'm confused here. I thought Kinahan had done the deal. I thought the deal was done. It was 50-50 of everything. I don't understand how the deal then gets further complicated. Okay, there's stuff like gloves and so forth. But you can broadly say, listen, the fight's happening on this date in this location. Just give us that. That's enough. Work out the details later. But they're backtracking. And why are they backtracking? Because the realities come home. You can't, you know, in the euphoria of a fight, you can bullshit everyone, but the fans eventually will sober up and go, hmm, what's happening here? So let's just look at some, some practical things about where we're going to be at in 2021. So let's deal with the first point that this fight can happen before Easter 2021. If that was to happen, Fury would have been out of the ring for about 13, 14 months. I don't think he'd want to go into the fight that cold. I think he understands the significance of it. And as such, I don't think he wants to take any risks that he's underprepared. As much as he may think he beats Joshua 100 times out of 100, and some people are inclined to agree, you still need to be prepared. So Fury needs a fight. I have no idea who you're going to put him in with. You put him in with a Brazil just to keep him ticking over? Maybe. But Fury will need to fight. So, so... The first third of the year is out. Then you start to look at the summer. Will they allow crowds back in by the summer? Or if London's going into tier three on Wednesday. And you imagine that these restrictions will last till February, March. And then you'll have to slowly phase things in. I don't even think we'll be able to fill out Wembley by the summer. You know, Don't be surprised if Euro 2021 has 
some compromised measures itself. So you're not looking to fill that out. So now you're looking at the Middle East, but the Middle East has its own COVID problems. It doesn't want a load of Brits traipsing in and causing all kinds of havoc. I don't think it does. So for a fight of this magnitude, when is it going to happen? It's definitely not in the first half of next year. And if it's not in the first half of next year, cool. But that means you've got to fight in the second half of 2021 if all things you know, go well. And then you've got to fight again in 2022. And everything I've heard indicates Usyk wants his shot at Joshua. He's not stupid. He knows Joshua's there for the taking. He wants the big fight with Fury. So is he going to give it up? I don't think he will. And the WBO are making those kind of noises that say the mandatories have to be respected, which may just be, you know, a call for a payoff. I don't know. But it's definitely not happening in the first half of next year. So don't get excited. No matter what they agree, it won't happen in the first half of next year because it's not practical. You can't do any media events. You can't do anything. The travel is going to be a nightmare in and of itself. So what do you do? You tell the truth and you say, the Fury fight can't happen before the second half of next year. Okay, so what does that mean for Dillian? Even if he beats Povetkin, he's not going to be ready to fight till the second half of next year. And if Joshua's fighting Fury for those belts, so Dillian doesn't get his shot till 2022 at the earliest. That's assuming there's no rematch between Joshua and Fury. So now Dillian's looking at the tail end of 2022 to fight for a world title. And then you imagine that's not going to happen at that point because there'll be another mandatory, right? So the real risk is actually that Dillian ends up completely frozen out of the heavyweight picture and he becomes another David Tua. Except worse, he won't have even had a chance to fight for a world title. But we don't talk about this because why should such obvious and practical things get in the way of a good story? So you look at it and you go, okay, so who's Joshua really chasing? Who's he really chasing? I wouldn't be surprised if he then just now suddenly out of nowhere starts saying, you know what, I'll fight Wilder. If the Fury fight can't happen because of crowds, I'll fight Wilder in America. I can see him saying something like that. I'll fight Wilder in America, we'll just do it on pay-per-view out there for the zone. Sky can get a bit of it, whatever. Listen, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I can see something like that happening. But I can't see Fury Joshua happening. Not before you're allowed to pack arenas out. And like... That vaccine might be on shaky ground because now they're telling us there's a mutation and none of the scientists know what the impact of that mutation is. So all I'm saying is, when you say I'm a Joshua hater, I don't hate Joshua the person. I kind of know him, but I don't know him and I'm not that interested because I have no existing relationship with him. I'm not one of these guys and if you look at it, there's a massive Joshua industry and the only person who isn't part of that Joshua industry now is Carl Frosch. But the reason Carl's not part of it is he went off the reservation. But Sky realized that the fans love Carl Frosch. So now Carl can come on and say what he wants about Joshua because he's not on the payroll anymore. But everyone else is, your Spencer Olivers, your Johnny Nelsons. They need the, the per diems and the hotel rooms. They need all of that, if not for their ego, for, for the income. So they're never going to tell you the truth. You know? People, when you insult Joshua, you insult Sky. Sky too big a corporation in Britain to be insulted. That's worth remembering, guys. And then if you go deeper than that, look at all these guys on social media that just parrot off what guys like Adam Smith say. You're not even getting paid for this. And you're just selling your own intelligence down the river. 
But if you want to do that, that's up to you. But what I will say is we need to start holding boxers to the right kind of standard. If they're there for the money, like Mayweather was, let's judge them on the money they generate. I'm okay with that. You start talking about legacy. We've got to judge you on legacy. And legacy is what came before. And where do you sit in relation to that? And over time, it becomes what came after. And where do you sit in relation to that? And right now, Joshua doesn't sit that good in relation to what came before. And I'm not going to be here talking about pyrotechnics and having your letters in flames and walking down in a white robe, whether it's single-breasted or double-breasted. Quite frankly, I do not care. Who are you chasing? Who are you fighting? And how are you getting on against those guys? That's your legacy. And as boxing fans, that is all we care about. Anyone who wants to talk about the other details and stuff like social media interaction, I mean, miss me with that conversation because that's what five-year-olds talk about. And I don't have time for that. I'm not in the business of crunching. I'm not in the business of spotlighting. I'm not in the business of any of that. Boxing is a really simple sport. If you say you're the best, fight the best. If you think you're mediocre, fight mediocre guys. That's it. No science behind that. It's how the sport started. It's hopefully how the sport will go on. Because if it doesn't, then we may as well just be watching the Paul brothers on pay-per-view. Because, you know, at least with those guys, they're taking the risks. You've got to respect that. But I come back to my original point. When you talk about legacy, you're talking about very serious things. You're talking about guys who put their lives on the line for 15 rounds. You're talking about guys who risk near death. You don't use that word lightly in the sport of boxing. And you guys have allowed Joshua and his team to do that. So don't, don't say I'm negative. I just stand up for what the sport's really about. And if you don't like that, <laughs> to be honest, it just says more about you than it does me. 